This episode of To Your Good Health Radio is being brought to you by Cardio Miracle, the ultimate nitric oxide booster with over 50 whole food, heart-healthy, bioavailable nutrients. Hello, this is Dr. David Friedman, host of To Your Good Health Radio. Back in 1995, when Ted Koppel was at ABC News, he did a feature on Nightline with a retired university professor named Maury Schwartz, who was dying of ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Among those viewers that evening was a young sports writer named Mitch Album. Maury just so happened to be his favorite and most beloved former college professor. They reconnected, and the insightful meetings that ensued led to the international number one best-selling book, Tuesdays with Maury. It became a staple in classrooms and universities and a four-time Emmy-winning TV movie. Mitch just released the 25th anniversary edition, and he joins us today for some updates on the book that touched the hearts of millions of people across the globe. Don't go anywhere. It all starts now. It's To Your Good Health Radio with number one best-selling author and renowned wellness expert, Dr. David Friedman, changing lives just for the health of it. Joining us next is a world-renowned author that has sold more than 40 million books in 48 languages worldwide. He has written eight number one New York Times bestsellers. He's also written award-winning TV films, stage plays, screenplays, a nationally syndicated newspaper column, and a musical. He's the recipient of the 2010 Red Smith Award for Lifetime Achievement and was inducted into the National Sports Media Association and Michigan Sports Hall of Fame. But above all these accomplishments, his greatest joy and purpose in life comes from helping those in need. This includes a plethora of charity work and supporting an orphanage, which he founded in Haiti. His internationally best-selling book, Tuesdays with Maury, remained a New York Times bestseller for an astounding 350 weeks. He recently released the 25th anniversary special edition. Welcome to the show, Mitch Album. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the program. Oh, so great for you to join us. You know, when I was growing up, I remember my grandfather turning off the TV and saying, nothing good comes from watching the boob tube, which is what they called it back then. And you proved my grandpa wrong. You proved him wrong. Share with us how flipping through the channels on the TV led to this 25-year whirlwind of success and renewed purpose. Well, your grandfather might not be totally wrong. Just in my <laughs> particular case, one program, I happened to be watching the Nightline program and uh, the night that Maury Schwartz appeared with Ted Koppel, and I did a double take because uh, Maury had been my favorite college professor. I had spent every every class that he offered. I took. I wrote my honors thesis with him. I'd been to his house. We ate meals at campus together. He was really more like an uncle to me than a professor. And uh, I promised that I would stay in touch with him when I graduated, and then broke that promise for 16 years while I was busy pursuing my own you know, egotistical glories and work and all the rest of it. And I think you always think, oh, eventually I'll go back and visit my professors or college, but then just drips away from you. And all of a sudden there he was talking to Ted Koppel about what it was like to die from Lou Gehrig's disease. And so I was racked with guilt about having not called him for all that time and then feeling terrible that he had this death sentence. So I decided I would ease my conscience by making one phone call. That's all I really ever planned to do, to make a phone call and let him know, you know, that I had seen it and I was thinking about him. And when I called him up, I had forgotten that back in college, I used to call him coach. 
it was like a sports affectation, you know, hi coach, how you doing coach? And I called him up and he answered, his nurse answered the phone and handed him the phone and he said, hello. I said, Professor Schwartz, my name is Mitch Album. I was a student of yours in the 70s. I don't know if you remember me. And the first thing he said to me after 16 years was, how come you didn't call me coach? And so <laughs> by the by the end of the conversation, uh, I was coming to visit him because guilt is a very powerful motivator. And one visit turned into many, many visits and, and uh, you know, turned into what we're, I guess, talking about today. Yeah, I, I read that you were turned down by many publishers that said Tuesdays with Maury just wasn't worth being published, but you refused to give up because you really focused on raising money to help him with his medical bills and end up becoming this huge, I guess, the best-selling memoir in history I read. I'm curious, do any of those publishers have scuff marks on the back of their pants for kicking themselves in the butt? <laughs> <laughs> Well, a, f a few have apologized to me, but, uh, you know, I, I didn't feel it was necessary. I understood at the time that, you know, nobody knew who I was and I was a sports writer and uh, I'd written two books in my life and both of them were sports books. And so a lot of people just looked at me and said, well, you can't do anything beyond that. And and you're right. I, I, I probably would have given up. I got turned down by so many places. I probably would have given up if it was just a project for me. But the only reason I wrote Tuesdays with Maury was to pay Maury's medical bills because I found out during the course of all my visits, which were every Tuesday for, for months and months and the last months he had left of his life. And we sort of did this last class together every Tuesday. We would talk about one subject as seen through the eyes of a man who was, you know, really facing his, his, his end, not the theoretical, I'm going to die one day, but I'm going to die in a matter of months. Here's what's important. Here's what's not important. Here's what you think is important. But when you get to the end, like I am, you're not going to think it's important. And when he told me he was so in debt for his medical bills and that he feared that when he died, his family was going to have to sell the house and he was going to leave them impoverished. And, you know, he said, I'm going to die twice. Once when I die the first time and once when I, I realize after I'm dead that what I've done to my family. So that was the reason I, I tried to go out and, and turn to my Tuesdays into a book because it was the only way I knew to raise money. And we were turned down by so many places that, um, as I say, I would have quit. But when you're doing something for somebody else, I find that you have more impetus to keep going, you know, uh, maybe more than you have just for your own personal satisfaction. And finally, we found a publisher a few weeks before Maury died. Um, who was willing to give us just the amount of money that we needed to cover his medical bills. And I gave Maury all that money and said, here, you know, don't die a second death. And he cried. And uh, I always say personally for me, that was kind of the end of Tuesdays with Maury because I had finally learned uh, through all my time with him to do something nice for somebody else for this, especially for this man who done so many nice things for me. But for the rest of the world, Tuesdays with Maury hadn't started yet. You know, I, I wrote, wrote the book and uh, it was supposed to be a 300 and something page book. That's what they had contracted for him. When I finished, I sent it off. I, I thought it was 300 pages because I used like double space typing when I was typing it. And I never really, you know, had to write a book for length at all. So I didn't really know how long it was. I just figured that was it. And when they, when I sent it in, they called me back and they said, we had a problem. I said, what's the problem? They said, well, when we paginated this and it, it comes out to about 150 pages. And I said, well, that's all there is. You know, I, I mean, I told the story. I don't have any more to say. And luckily they said, well, it's all right. We'll just make it a small book. And if you've ever seen the book Tuesdays with Maury, it's, it's small size. You know, even the hardcover is, is it looks more like a paperback. But they did that so that 
Otherwise, if they did a regular size, it would look like a comic book, you know? So even from the beginning, it was just had a weird birth and um, it definitely wasn't supposed to become a bestseller. It was released in August of 1997, which is not exactly a, a hot month for a, for a book about the meaning of life. And, uh, you know, it didn't hit any bestsellers lists for months, uh, it, but it was really one of those examples that I don't know could even happen today, to be honest with you. But back then, people spread books by word of mouth. If somebody liked something, they told somebody and little bookstores would say, oh, here's a good book. They would recommend it to their customers. And it started to get a following and it slowly, slowly, slowly uh, grew. And when it finally did hit the bestsellers list and, and eventually went to number one in the following April, which was, you figure that's like, what, like nine months after it came out, which is really unusual in the book world. And then it stayed there for a very long time. Yeah, it's, it's, I love how you, you turned your rejection into redirection. It just didn't listen to the naysayers. I love stories like that. But let me ask you, you know, today's society is so different than it was 25 years ago. Books, TV shows, movies, and music really has gotten buried under the sands of time. I'm curious, why do you think Tuesdays with Maury has remained so popular today? Well, I think Tuesdays with Maury is, I've always said it's not really my story. It, it's more a story that everybody can relate to. And if I had a nickel for every time someone who I didn't know stopped me and took out their wallet and said, this is a picture of my Maury, and it would be their grandparent or their teacher or their mother or their whoever, everybody's had sort of a mentor in their life uh, that they've looked up to. So I think people relate to the Maury character in the book that way. And, and then everybody has gone through a stage in their life where they're wondering if they're doing the right thing if they're not pursuing something that maybe is taking them down the wrong path as, as I was when I was visiting Maury, you know, I was very successful, but I wasn't very satisfied and I wasn't very content. And, you know, he caught me at that moment in life at 37 years of age when you're, you know, you're really sort of questioning that and you're still young enough to do something about it. So I think a lot of people relate to that part of the, the story too. And I just, seeing how it's become so popular around the world in countries where I can't even understand the language, I, I get copies of the books. I, I wouldn't even know it was me. I can't read anything on the cover. You know, they say that's your name in that's your name in Polish or that's your name in Russian or that's your name in Chinese. <laughs> OK, uh, for it to be received in those places must mean that there's a universality to the story in cultures all around the world. And, right. uh, you know, I, I think that's probably it. Yeah, definitely. Sure. This. So what can readers expect when they get this uh, new anniversary edition? So after 25 years, um, you know, we wanted to add something to the edition that made it different. And I had already written for the 10th anniversary, and I think the 20th anniversary, I've written some, some thoughts about how the world had changed, how I had changed, you know, what I had done with the lessons that Maury had, had given me. And I thought, well, I don't really need to do that or shouldn't do that again. But there was something that I'd never shared with anybody and it was the letter that I wrote to the different publishers when we first wanted to turn Tuesdays with Maury into a book. And uh, I, I did it in a form of a letter that I wrote to my literary agent explaining what was going on and why I thought it was special and why I thought it would make a good book. And you can see in, and we, and so we put this in the 25th anniversary. We put the whole, it's like a 15 page letter and, and we put the whole thing in the back and you can sort of see what my thinking was back then and what, 
what Maury, you know, it was before Maury died and, and, and I was just, you know, pleading, please somebody, you know, print the story or publish the story because it's so important. And he's saying all these things and, you know, seeing now through what Tuesdays with Maury has become, it's kind of interesting to read that letter and realize, you know, that's what was sent to all these publishers who said no, <laughs> who read right. it and said, eh, you know, not impressed. <laughs> so uh, I, I thought that we would share that with the uh, with the reading audience, and that's what's in the 25th anniversary. Yeah, I remember reading the Beatles were turned down by 27 record labels. They said nobody would buy your records. Yeah. <laughs> Especially yeah. Na- named after an insect. Who would buy a, 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 a band named Beatles? <laughs> right. Well, wouldn't you like to have the the letters that went along with the you know the tape? Please listen to these uh, four lads from Liverpool. I think they're good, you know. Right. Uh, so that's a little bit, little bit what we did. That's interesting. You know, I had William Shatner on the show, and I asked him. I said, "What is your secret to being so happy and productive at 91?" And he told me his purpose in life is fueled by giving back to others, supporting charities and people in need, and that's what keeps yeah. him growing. And he 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 books uh, charities three months out. He says, "I can't die. They're counting on me." Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And your entire purpose, your purpose was with with. Writing this book was to raise money for medical bills for Maury, but you also support charities and you even run an orphanage in Haiti. Share with us how giving to others has shaped your life. Well, I can best uh, tell you that by an incident with Maury, because it really was the impetus for all the charitable work that I am involved in now, which constitutes, you know, 60, 70 percent of my life at this point. When I would visit Maury, other people would sometimes come and, and, and sometimes on the days that I was there and I would observe that a lot of times they, they, they were scared to talk to him because, you know, they didn't know him that well. They'd seen him on nightline. Maybe they had met him a few times. And they wanted to pay their respects and they would come with like photos and stories and they, 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 you know, they were going to cheer up a dying man and they would go into his office and the door would close and they would come out an hour later in tears but they would be crying about like their divorce, their love life, their work, their prop. And they would say, well, I, I don't know. I went in to try to cheer him up. But after a few minutes, he started asking me questions about me. So I started talking and then he started really asking me questions. So I started really talking. And then the next thing I know, I was like confessing everything. And, you know, I went to try to cheer him up, but he cheered me up. And I went to Maury after seeing this multiple times. I said, I don't understand. You're the one who's dying. You're the one who can't move. You're the one who needs to be carried from place to place, have his tears wiped, have his rear end wiped. You know, why are you helping other people? Why don't you just say, you know, feel sorry for me? And he said, Mitch, why would I ever take from people like that? Taking just reminds me and makes me feel like I'm dying. Giving makes me feel like I'm living. And I never forgot when he said that. I've never gotten that little phrase. It's very profound. And I have found in my life that that is that is a true, as true a sentence as you're ever going to hear, that when you are giving to other people, there's a sense of purpose and there's a sense of contentment that doesn't come from when you're going out shopping or buying stuff or or achieving things for, you know, a new status for yourself. And the more I got involved with my charities, first here in Detroit and then ultimately in Haiti, the more I realized that I was enjoying myself and feeling better about myself when I was there than I was when I was writing or broadcasting or doing whatever. Not that I didn't like those things. Those were fine. But I felt more of a sense of purpose and more of a sense of contentment. And when I'm in Haiti, I go to Haiti every month. I've been in Haiti every month since 2010. So it's 13 years or pretty much. Uh, and I operate this orphanage. We have 60 plus kids at any given time who are there. And 
when I sleep there, I mean, you know, for the most part, until very recently, was sleeping on a four-inch mattress in a room that had no, you know, uh, air conditioning. Or, you know, you have a fan and it's hot as 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 can be, and you're sweating, and the food is tough, and there's no hot water, and there's no. And yet, I I slept better there than I ever did in my nice, comfortable home here in the states. And I would always say to my wife, this, I wake up happy here and I wake up even though I didn't, you know, I'm sweating and soaked from sleeping, but, um, I feel a sense of purpose here. You know, you, you never question like, ah, is today really worthwhile or why am I doing this? Because the minute you get up, there's dozens of kids saying, you know, Mr. Mitch, we need to do this. Mr. Mitch, we need to do that. And, and you just go into it. So I really found that that giving is living is, is, is true, at least for me. And I, I believe it's true for other people as well. Yeah, so so true. I, I know Oprah was uh, very inspirational in getting the TV film adaptation to fruition, which starred one of my favorite actors of all time, Jack Lemmon. Since Jack never met Maury, was it difficult seeing somebody trying to portray him? Or did you think that uh, Jack would have made uh, Maury proud? Did he, would he get the thumbs up from him? Well, there was an interesting story with that because I went to the set there uh, and... Uh, it was very weird. Uh, you know, I, I kind of sat there and everybody got quiet and then I start hearing them talking and I hear Mitch, you know, like Mitch, you have to do this and Mitch, you have and every time, you know, if you hear your own name, you want to turn, uh, it's just a natural instinct. And, and, and they had a set that looked just like the room that Maury and I talked in and they were saying things that Maury and I, you know, said to one another. And it was kind of surreal for me. And at first I was sort of put off by it. I thought, Oh, this is just strange. You know, there's somebody, playing me and somebody playing Maury. But after they did the filming, they had a break. Uh, Jack Lemon asked if he could speak to me. And so I went over and I sat down with him. We had some coffee or whatever. And uh, he started asking me all these questions about, you know, how did Maury deal with this, this, and this? And I realized after about three or four questions that he wasn't asking me because he wanted to be a better actor. Uh, he was asking me because he was sick. And I said that to somebody, I said, is he not well? And eventually I found out that he had, he had uh, cancer and was aware of it. And so in playing that role, um, he was really, he was really playing the part for real of someone who was dying. And I think that's part of why he did such a great job and why he told me this was the, is the favorite part he ever had. And I mean, for Jack Lemon to say that given all the parts he had played, uh, that's pretty remarkable, but I think that was the one that became closest to him, and it ended up being his last real movie, you know, that he that he acted and he did some voice work, whatever, and he won the Emmy for it, and and um, he was very uh, he was very kind to me and and, and a lovely man, and uh, you know, I only I hope that you know playing that part and hearing how Maury kind of dealt with his mortality helped him with his. Yeah, so so true. You you mentioned everybody's got a Maury in their life, and you know, I was just reading your book again. I couldn't help but think about an 88 year old patient that came in to see me with debilitating back pain. Car he couldn't even hardly walk. I had the unfortunate task of telling him that he had phase four spinal degeneration, and I couldn't help him because he waited too late. He thanked me. He left, but in the days that followed, he would re re would return to my clinic and sit in the waiting room. And every time a young person would come in, he would tell them, give them a pep talk on the importance of taking care of their health now before it was too late. Like he waited, it was very interesting. Wow. And I thought of that. That would be like something Maury would do. And I'm curious if Maury was alive today, sitting in somebody's waiting room. What do you think he would share with today's youth about life? Huh. 
Wow. Uh, well, first of all, they'd be there for a long time because remember, Maury was a te- Maury was a teacher of youth, and uh, that's what he did. So he would have, you know, gone into all the things that he taught the young people and people like me when I was there, namely, you know, don't pursue money as a goal. Uh, don't pursue success for its own sake. Uh, be human. Uh, find find uh, something uh, that you can care about that helps other people. Find something that's creative. If you don't like the culture, don't buy the culture. You don't have to, you know, follow what everybody else says. Um, if you're going to consider starting a family, I'm not going to tell you whether you should or shouldn't, but I can tell you in my life, there is nothing, has been nothing like the security and the love that you find in a family. You won't get it through friends. You won't get it through work. It's a unique thing. Having children is a unique thing. You know, these are all the kinds of things that he and I talked about. Um, every week we did one kind of topic. So we would talk about children. We talk about family, talk about forgiveness and how you need to forgive everybody, everything, you know, and don't wait until it's too late as, as he had in his life. And then realized when he was going to die, it was too late to say he was sorry to some people who weren't here anymore. So I think he'd have a lot to say, but particularly to the youth of today, I think the first thing he would say is put that down, (laughs) meaning their phone, you know, put that down. You know, and and now we're going to talk because Maury was all about being present and, uh, you know, looking you in the eye. And 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 when he was with you, he was with you. And what made those Tuesdays so special for me is I never got the feeling, even though he was dying and even though he had doctors and appointments and other people. And he never, ever made me feel like there was anyone more important than me during the time that I was there, and which was a great gift. And and that comes from someone you, you don't just get that just because you get a, a terminal illness. You have to have been that way your whole life. And he was. And and one of the reasons he was that way his whole life is because he didn't watch television. And well, of course, there were no cell phones back then, but but he didn't get distracted by things. He, he was he was with people. And I think that would be the first thing he would tell young people is shut that off, put it away. And now let's talk. Before we continue, I want to tell you about an amazing product called Cardio Miracle. The number one cause of death in America is cardiovascular disease. On average, somebody dies of a heart attack or stroke every 36 seconds. The good news is you don't have to be a statistic. Young, old, and in between, we all need more nitric oxide in our bodies. It's essential for our overall health because it helps blood, nutrients, and oxygen travel throughout the body. Research shows a lack of nitric oxide may be associated with high blood pressure, heart disease, diabetes, and even erectile dysfunction. Cardio Miracle's ultimate nitric oxide advanced delivery system reaches a cellular level, so it starts to work within seconds. You also get over 50 whole food nutrients in every delicious scoop. I take Cardio Miracle every day, not just for my heart, but my entire body, and you should too. It's backed by science and a 60-day no-risk money-back guarantee. If you want to improve your heart health, increase your energy, mental clarity, and boost your immune system, order Cardio Miracle today. CardioMiracle.com and use promo code CardioNow for 20% off. CardioMiracle.com, promo code CardioNow. Yeah, stop dancing on TikTok. Go spend time with right. family. Right. <laughs> oh, he would have he would have he would have never been able to accept this TikTok culture and this filming of your <laughs> filming of yourself culture. A, a selfie, yeah. the word selfie in and of itself is antithetical to who Maury Schwartz was. 
Yeah, I want to share one of my favorite quotes from Rory and get your view. He said, so many people walk around with a, a meaningless life. They seem half asleep, even when they're busy doing things they think that are important. This is because they're chasing the wrong things. And he said, the, the way to get meaning into your life is to devote yourself to loving others, creating something that gives you purpose and meaning. Why do you think people today live on this hamster wheel, going through the motions of life, allowing it to slip by? It, it, it's I see this with so many people, it's frustrating. Well, you know, it's obviously not new because Maury said those things in 1995. And, you know, we were just coming out of the whole me decade, the whole greed is good 80s. And, you know, every, everybody, Maury saw that, you know, a lot of kids who would come to Brandeis University, which is where he taught in the 60s, who were majoring in sociology, uh, psychology, social work. Now we're coming through in the 80s and we're majoring in finance, you know, and they all wanted to go to Wall Street. And and so I think he he had plenty of time to observe many of them coming back and, and, and being unhappy. Why do we do it? Well, uh, that's what our culture is. Our culture teaches us that, you know, success is equated with money and position and status and, and things. And, uh, you know, you don't ever see a commercial during a TV show about how to be a good person. You see a commercial about why you need to buy this car, why you need to buy this outfit, why you need to buy the, these cigarettes, whatever, whatever it is. And, and so everything is about ownership and having more and doing better. And we don't, we don't have rankings for the nicest person in the world, but we sure have rankings for the richest persons in the world. You know, we, we, we don't talk about how great movies are on Monday morning, but we'll tell you how much money they made, you know? So everything is oriented towards, uh, this is where you get your, self-worth from how much you earn, how successful you are, what your status is, how many people know you. And today, I think the biggest thing is fame. I think it's the biggest currency that's out there. And if you ask young people, they have these studies that they do all the time when they ask teenagers, you know, what's the most important thing to be when you're older? And they all say famous. You know, I want to be an influencer. I want to have a million clicks. I want to have followers. That's the opposite of how, what Maury would, would teach. And that's the opposite what I've observed, and now, you know, I'm a lot closer to Maury's age from that book than I am when it was my age, uh, is that these are the things that are going to leave you empty. These are the things that are going to make you feel very devoid of any connection. And when you, you think that you've got friends because you have followers on TikTok because you do a bunch of dances or whatever, at some point when you really need people, they're not going to be interested because oh, just keep dancing. We're not interested in helping you with your problems. You know, just entertain us. So um, we put our faith in the wrong things, and, um, and, 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 and we also don't put our faith in faith, which is another big part of things. I mean, look at the, the – there's a fascinating number in the drop in church attendance and religious um, uh, you know, belonging that ties exactly to the time that the Internet came into being, right around 2000. There was this, for the, for all of the 20th century, the number of people who went to church, went to synagogue, whatever, religious affiliated themselves was pretty steady. Dropped off a little bit, was pretty steady from like 1900 to 2000. And then from 2000, it dropped like 20 something percent to where we are now, to less than half. Well, what happened around 2000? The internet. And, and when you can sort of make your own gods and make, you know, Google your God and, and, uh, and, and Facebook your God and, and, uh, you know, uh, how often, how many followers you have on any of these things, that's, that's, those are my followings. That's the flock that I belong to. 
you suddenly don't need faith, don't need religion. And, and I think there's a correspondence to the unhappiness of people who are putting their faith in some of these other things now. Yeah, and they're building friendships with people they wouldn't recognize if they were sitting in the same room with them. Correct. <laughs> they right. don't, they've never met, but they're considered their friends. Right. And, and, and who knows what Photoshop look they look like. They wouldn't even know. They wouldn't recognize the people. So you're so right, right there as well. Let me ask you, you have this golden touch for writing best-selling books. Does the pressure to write another Grand Slam ever cause you to pause, or does it create a writer's block? No, uh, first of all, I don't, I don't, I don't kind of view it that way. I think I started in the music business and I was, uh, you know, that's what I really loved. And I, I, I really wanted to you know, spend my life in music and I just did not succeed. And, you know, everywhere I went, I just was turned down and, and, you know, I would have to say that I failed at, at, at that in terms of, you know, trying to find an audience. And so, even later I got into writing and moved into first into journalism and then ultimately writing, but your first experiences never leave you. And so my sensation, anytime I write a book is that nobody's going to read this. Uh I I go right back to being a musician. Like nobody's going to read it. It's going to just going to be terrible. Um, Nobody's going to want it. And I just, I just have that, you know, all the time until somehow I'm proven wrong. So I, I don't, it doesn't really hit me like the pressure to succeed as well as you did. I, I, I'm always stunned that anybody reads anything, you know, because I, I think I just have that thing inside me of those days in the music business where I would bring my records or bring bring my tapes, you know, to uh, somebody to listen to. And they'd say, nah, I don't hear it. You know, nah, I don't want it. No, I don't. And it happened to me so many times and over and over just being told no. And even Tuesdays with Maury, you know, being told no that there's just part of you that just assumes, well, it's probably going to be a no or probably people aren't going to like it. And then you're always pleasantly surprised when they do. But as far as writer's block, I I, I don't have that. For whatever lucky reason, I actually have the opposite problem. I have pages and pages of books that I want to write and, and, and nowhere near the amount of years left on earth to be able to write them. So I, I, you know, I, I pick the ones that, that appeal to me the most, but there's so many that I, that I want to do. And, um, I just hope, you know, God grants me the years to be able to get to some of them. Uh, but, um, you know, I do them every couple of years and, and pray that they do well. Yeah. You know, you got so much that you've come. I mean, your, your bio is like from left to right to left. Is there something on your bucket list you still want to achieve or you checked off everything? Oh, no, no, no. I don't think you ever check off everything. Uh, you know, and I've, I've, uh, I'm just having right now another item on my bucket list, uh, that I never anticipated, but my wife and I did not have children of our own. We got married a little late and, uh, you know, never had the experience of raising a child from, you know, infancy, uh, even though I have many children that we raise at the orphanage and I'm with them every month, but they usually, by the time they come to us, they're usually about three years old, you know, and, and we had a child brought to us earlier this year who was just six months old and only weighed seven pounds and hadn't had anything to eat uh, her whole life uh, except sugar water. And, uh, she was severely malnourished and anemic. She had conjunctivitis and we rushed her to the hospital and, and we were able to get a, a, a visa very quickly and brought her to the States because just, they weren't really going to, we didn't think we'd be able to save her there and we brought her here and she's been living with us ever since. And she just celebrated her one year, uh, birthday two days ago. And we've had this amazing experience of, you know, my wife and I are in our sixties and yet we're able to 
be raising this child with, you know, the whole, all the bottles and the diapers and everything. And I know most people would think, well, who wants to do that? But for us, it's, it's kind of a joyous opportunity. And, uh, you know, talk about a bucket list opportunity and, and to have the love of this little child is, and, and to see that she's okay and she's healthy now and she's going to have a future. So I think there are many, many opportunities that still await uh, me in, in doing good. I, I don't really have very many left, you know, professionally. I've, I've been blessed with so much success professionally that more than I deserve. It would be almost rude to say, well, now I want this. But in terms of making a difference, there are so many places that need help and so many things that need help that we try to do. And here in Detroit, we have now 10 different operations um, under, say, Detroit, under a charity that I started in 2006. And and it, it, they go all over the city. And we, this past year, we just created a, a a bicycle factory to build bicycles for people in Detroit who don't have transportation. And we create jobs. We get refurbished bikes or bikes that get donated to us. We fix them up and then we paint them this really bright color. And then we give them to people who need to get to work or need to get to school. And we just started that this year and it's, it's, it's working out really well. And, and so there's always an idea or some other way that you can help that you're never going to run out of, you know, as I say, I'll run out of years before I run out of ideas. Oh, that's so great. Plus you get enriched in your heart. And I think that's, that's where everybody's chasing the buck, but man, when you, when you create that in your heart valves, helping others, there's nothing like it. And the interest you get paid is way more than any bank or stock market because <laughs> it's inside your veins. That's very true. Yeah. It's very true. Well, Fanta, it was so great chatting with you. I want to thank you for, for joining us. I hope you sleep good at night knowing what a difference you've made and continue to make in people's lives because you're, 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 the, you're the real McCormick. Corey, and I appreciate you being here, and you're welcome back anytime. Well, that's, that's very kind of you. Thank you for having me on your show, and, and thanks for the good conversation. Yeah, it was great. To learn more about Mitch and to get your copy of the 25th anniversary special edition of Tuesdays with Maury, go to MitchAlbum.com, and this special edition includes a new afterword, including the behind-the-scenes look at the original pitch letter and precious details about Mitch's time with Maury uh, before anything was ever written down, published, translated, or adapted. You can follow Mitch on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mitch Album. For my daily health post, follow me at Dr. David Friedman on Instagram. I'm at Dr. D. Friedman. If you heard something today that would benefit somebody you know, this touching story that was shared by Mitch, send them a link to this podcast. It's available at toyougoodhealthradio.com or radiomd.com. And while there, be sure and check out our podcast library. Share these segments with friends, family, coworkers, and on social media. This information is too important to keep to yourself, as I always say. Say sharing is caring. You can also subscribe to future podcasts at iHeartRadio and iTunes. More to come. Stay well and stay tuned. This episode of To You Good Health Radio was brought to you by Cardio Miracle, the ultimate nitric oxide booster with over 50 whole food heart healthy nutrients. If you want to improve your heart health, increase your energy, mental clarity, and boost your immune system, order Cardio Miracle today at CardioMiracle.com. Use promo code CardioNow for 20% off. CardioMiracle.com, promo code CardioNow.